Good morning. Uh, I'm Ben. I'm uh, one of the elders here, and uh, if uh, you came expecting Tony Walls, it'll be about five weeks. Uh, he is uh, on sabbatical, and we're starting a new series today with, uh, with the elders and, and Chris uh, called If I Could Tell You One Thing. Um, so the idea behind this series is, uh, is really, it's twofold. One, it's for... Uh, um, for the, for the elders to, to, to be here to, uh, to talk about uh, kind of what God has done in our lives. And it's also for you to kind of get to know us a little bit as we go. Uh, so these sermons will be a little bit personal in nature. Uh, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll come from a lot of different perspectives, and, and, uh, and I really believe that God will bless them. Uh, but I'm going to start with, uh, with a question, and, uh, and, and it's this. Have you ever been... To the top of the mountain? Have you ever been to the top? Thinking about um, in your profession, in, in, uh, in a sport, or, uh, or any other arena in your life, have, have you ever experienced the top? And, and as I started to think about that, um, I thought about the time that I almost got to the top. We were, we, were, we were really close. When I, was, uh, when I was in high school, I played soccer all the way from about four years old all the way through high school. And when, uh, when I was a senior, my travel team decided this would be, so it was kind of our last year together, and we decided this would be the year we entered the state tournament. Um, and so we entered the tournament, and the tournament was actually like four miniature tournaments building up to the state tournament. So you had to play a district tournament, and then you played a regional tournament and a sub-state tournament, and then you went, uh, if you advanced all the way through, you went to Murfreesboro and you played in the state tournament. Uh, and uh, so there we went, and uh, it, it's really interesting. There was a team out of Knoxville. Uh, I'll never forget them. They wore black and yellow. They were the Knoxville Warriors, and, uh, and we played them at the district level and beat the tar out of them. We played them at the regional level, uh, and they were so upset with how bad we were beating them, they forfeited. Um, we played them again. So, like, the top two teams each time advanced. So it was always us and them. And we played them again at the sub-state level and beat them again. Um, and then we were in opposite sides of the bracket in the state tournament. I think you're seeing where this is going. And, uh, and we played our way all the way into the state championship game and ended up meeting the Knoxville Warriors in the state championship game. And we had this thing in the bag. We were in these guys' heads. They couldn't touch us. We, I mean, we had beat them like a drum three times uh, in this tournament. So, I mean, we were feeling pretty good about ourselves. It was a high-scoring game. We were ahead uh, a lot, and they mounted a comeback toward the end uh, with about – Two minutes left. I'll never forget. About two minutes left in the game, uh, we were ahead seven to six. Their comeback was almost complete, um, and uh, a guy got the ball from about me to those chairs, and went around me, and took off and dribbled through basically our whole team and scored and, uh, and tied the game up. Uh, long story short, we went to penalty kicks. They beat us, uh, and that was when I almost made it to the top. Um, and so I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that we, we have those stories, and, and I'm sure some of us have been there. Uh, some of us have reached that apex. Some of us have, have hit those goals uh, that, that we've wanted. Um, but that was the, the example that came to mind. 
Um, and with that in mind, I'm going to talk about being at the top today. Uh, our scripture today is uh, from Romans chapter 8, the, the last few verses of Romans chapter 8, uh, 31 through 39. And if you're familiar with this passage, these verses really do illustrate being at the top, being at the top of the mountain. Um, and when we came up with this series of, if I had one thing, if I could tell you one thing, uh, my mind immediately went to Romans. Uh, it's, it's kind of the place where I like to camp. Uh, I'm not sure if books of the Bible are like children and you're not supposed to have a favorite, but uh, if, if it's that way, then don't tell Obadiah because, uh, because Romans is my favorite. I, I really, I tend to come back here and I come back often and, and I really, really uh, love this passage and, and, I, and I read it and then I get something new out of it all the time. And so this is kind of where my mind went. Um, and these are really some of my favorite verses in the Bible when you think about the freedom that we have in Christ. Uh, we stood up here and we sang about his name and we sang about his love and that really culminates uh, here in this passage. Um, and, you know, these verses are really the crescendo of a chapter where Paul starts by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And we just build and we build and we build to these verses. And they're really excited. It gets your juices flowing. And, and, and uh, you know, John Piper even goes as far as to call this chapter the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, and so th these are some really fantastic, kind of get you pumped up verses. And it, you really think about being at the top of the mountain. So I'm going to read them in their entirety so we can get the full effect, and then we're going to come back and we're going to break them down just a little bit. So Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm telling you, it just gets you going. So when I began to think about this concept of if I could tell you one thing, and, and let me just decide for a second, uh, that sounds really easy. Um, and, and, and I've, uh, I've done this a few times. I've, I've prepared probably about 20 or so sermons in my life. This is probably the hardest one because then you're trying to narrow everything down to one thing. But when I came to this idea, if I could just tell you one thing, freedom in Christ is a theme that came to mind, uh, probably because my mind goes to Romans, but, but this freedom that Christ gives us is a theme that just kept coming to mind. And one reason, I guess, is because I often observe 
in my own life and, and perhaps in the lives of, of the folks around me, um, just we tend to be pretty hard on ourselves. We, we, tend to, uh, we, we tend to ourselves be hard. We tend to react to circumstances around us. Um, and there are circumstances that just that beat us down. And, and if you look around the room, each of us brings our own set of struggles in here today. Uh, and so as, as you think about that, um, freedom is a place that, uh, that I like to come back to. Um, and as I think of my own struggles, I come back to the first few verses in this passage for comfort quite often. Uh, so if you'll look, again, we're going to look through verses 31 through 34 uh, again. So if we look at these, I, I, I want to read them again uh, because I, I want to pull a few things out of them. So uh, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not, let's try that again, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Three times in these verses, Paul comes back and uses the phrase, for us. He comes back and says, for us, three different times. And um, actually what he's doing here, and, uh, and I forget the, the technical name for the, for the type of argument that Paul's making here, but what he's doing is to illustrate his point, he's using the more difficult thing to illustrate uh, that the simpler thing uh, will be taken care of. Um, so, um, oh, I had an example and it just slipped right out of my head. Anyway, but he's using the more difficult thing to illustrate that the simpler thing is easy for God to handle. Um, and so he, he continues to come to, if God's doing this, he's going to take care of this as well. And so, um, and he's also stressing that, that God is doing the work, that God is the one that is taking care of these things. So let's look at the three places where we see for us. So the first one is God is for us. So who can be against us? Because if God, the almighty creator of the universe, the sovereign over creation is for us, what can people do? Sometimes uh, the word if there in verse 31 uh, can cause some confusion. Some people look at that and go, okay, well, there's an if. So does that mean it's an e like, could, it not, could God not be for us? Does that make sense? And so sometimes that causes some confusion, but that can also uh, easily be um, translated as since. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Because we have to look at the context. What Paul just finished talking about before these verses is um, that this if is conditional on verses 29 and 30, where Paul talks about God's choosing and justifying and glorifying us through conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Um, so if God is for us, if he is going to do those things, what human, what thing outside of that can be against us? The second place 
where we see for us in these verses is God gave his son for us. There's the difficult. So, why wouldn't he give us everything else? Again, he's coming at this style of, of arguing from a point, beginning with the difficult task to assure completion of the easier one. The hard work was done. God sent his son. So Paul's argument is that if God would send his son to die for sinners, to redeem people, why would he also not forgive our sins and equip us to do every good work? And finally, the last for us in these verses is God's resurrected son is interceding for us. So, who can condemn us? You know, this, is, this imagery is meant to bring to mind this idea of standing in a courtroom. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I thought back to, uh, to high school and being in, in mock trial and, and standing in a courtroom and trying to convict this, you know, actor playing a witness of, of some crime. Uh, but I really like uh, the way John MacArthur restates this question. Who can successfully condemn someone who God has declared righteous? See, Paul is building this argument, and he's building, and he's building, and he's building uh, to show us God's great love for us. He is, he's come from the beginning of this chapter where he says there's no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus, and he's building to this final crescendo of God's love for us and what he has done for us. Um, and you can just... You can hear his voice kind of comforting and prodding at the same time as, as we go through, uh, through these verses, telling us that God has done the work, so why do we worry about the opposition? Why do we worry about the things that we struggle with and our own inadequacies and our own insecurities? Um, and, and then he moves on, and he starts with this next rhetorical question. So if we go to verse 35, uh, verses 35 and 36 says, Excuse me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I don't know about you guys. Um, like I said, I come back to these verses a lot. And honestly, this Old Testament citation for a long time felt really out of place in these verses. As, as we're building, uh, we're, we're, we're working toward this flow of victory and achieving and being at the top, and then we go to, we're being killed all the day long. So I want to stop for just a second. I want to put a pin in this one for just a second, and I want to come back to these verses in just a minute. Uh, so let's continue to 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. You know, I turn this phrase over and over in my head a lot. I, this, is, this is one of those phrases in the Bible that just kind of catches my, my brain, and, and that's one of those things where my head starts turning something over and over and over again. And I always wondered, what is more than a conqueror? If you've conquered, you, you've won. 
What, what does that mean to be more than conquerors? You know, maybe, maybe this sticks in my head because I'm a history buff and, 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 I, and I really enjoy studying that. Maybe it's because my reading material of choice is teen fantasy novels. And so uh, I had, a, uh, I had a, a librarian friend once joked that if the book didn't have maps and dragons, I wasn't going to read it. And that's probably pretty close to the truth. Uh, but for whatever reason, this terminology turns over and over in my head so much more than conquerors. You know, these words, they tend to resonate in our culture as well. Um, if, if you think about, uh, and, and, and I want to strike the right balance here, uh, because this is Memorial Day weekend, but if you think about our culture and you think about, um, about the way that we think about being conquerors, when children are in fourth grade, we start teaching them about how a group of ragtag militia defeated the greatest army in the world. We tell our kids about how um, our involvement in the, the two world wars basically saved the world. We talk about how America has fought terrorism and communism and won and won and won. We win. You want to strike a chord with Americans, you talk about winning. You talk about achieving. You talk about summiting the mountain. So these verses really do resonate. In fact, you think about the only time we ever hear in school about Americans surrendering was Lee surrendering to Grant, and we can totally justify that one in our minds. So we come to these, we come to these texts, we come to these verses, and we hear more than conquerors. And I think sometimes it confuses us a little bit. I think we come to that point where we go, so why don't I feel like a conqueror? Why don't I feel like I'm there? Why don't I always feel like I'm at the top, like I'm at the peak, like I'm at the summit? Why am I not at the top of the mountain? Or what do I have to do to be there? What do I have to do to feel like I'm at the summit, like I'm at the top, like I'm at the peak? And it's really easy to come to the conclusion of, yeah, I know that God loves me and nothing can change that, but I don't feel like I've conquered anything. Again, coming back to thinking about the things that we bring in the door every day. I don't feel like I've conquered anything. I'm going to rewind now. I told you that verses 35 and 36 felt a little out of place in this passage. Um, I've always struggled with why Paul, at the height of his argument, quotes this particular Old Testament passage. I mean, he's got the whole Old Testament to choose from, and he comes back to this passage, it almost feels counterproductive to his argument. So let's read it again, verse 35 and 36. So we'll see Paul's argument, and then we'll see his quotation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written? Building, building, building. And then, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I mean, I, I, thinking back to, uh, to, to our Exodus series, I thought of a great verse that would fit here really well. Uh, a verse we covered a few weeks ago, uh, Exodus 15.3. Imagine if we put this one in here. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Doesn't that sound a whole lot more like 
triumphant? Doesn't that fit so much more with the tone of what's going on in this passage? So why? Why does Paul choose this psalm, uh, this particular passage from Psalm 44? Why do we build up to more than conquerors with we are being killed every day? To get that answer, it's important to go back and look at the context. Uh, so we're going to go to Psalm 44, and um, on, the, on the screen we're going to have about the second half. I think I want to read the first half really quickly, though, because I want to uh, see the context of, of where the psalmist is coming from. So I'm going to start in verse 1, and then the, the screen will pick up in 17. Oh God, we have heard with our ears... Our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days, in the days of old. With your own hand drove out nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. We're talking about the things God has done for us. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you saved us from our foes and have put it to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us. And you have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten the spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a, for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us the byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler and the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So now we'll pick up in 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in this place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands out to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Seeing that little excerpt from Psalm 44 in the buildup, of Paul's declaration of victory. And we go back and we see this psalm, and the psalm is all about defeat. And, and it's interesting because the writer of this psalm was not experiencing this adversity and defeat because they had turned away from God. Throughout the entire psalm, we see him say, listen, we're, we're still worshiping you. 
We have heard from our fathers who you are. We are following your covenant. And if we turned away, you'd know it. You know, we often associate trials and troubles uh, with living sinfully. But if you look back at this psalm, the psalmist is pretty confident in his faith. And he's calling out to God. We've done everything right, and this is still happening. God, you have to come to our rescue. You know, as, as I read this psalm, I, I thought back to, uh, to the first few days of Hadley's life. Um, and uh, to give you a little context, um, Jessica had a, a rather easy, and I'll, I will qualify that, um, labor and delivery. Um, there, there were some hurdles within labor and delivery, but it's, it went pretty well. It went pretty, pretty easily, as, as easily as can be expected, and, uh, and that's where the ease stopped. Um, so the first, uh, the first few days of Hadley's life, uh, she didn't want to eat. We, we had trouble with that, so because of that, we ran into jaundice. Uh, we spent... Um, we spent an extra, I think, three days in the hospital uh, under the lamps. We got discharged. They moved us literally to a deserted floor. We were the only people on the floor. We were, like, often forgotten from the world, and we just spent the day with Hadley cooking under the lamps. Um, and uh, so, obviously, not prepared for that. Um, we finally were discharged from the hospital, um, I think we spent one night at home. Um, oh, and on the way home from the hospital, Jessica got a phone call uh, from a stranger, uh, some nurse in some clinic at UT Hospital. By the way, we had been at uh, St. Mary's, so we had no idea anybody at UT Hospital. Jessica gets a phone call on the way home from a nurse at, uh, at UT Hospital and said, hey, on your child's newborn screening, there was a little bit of an anomaly uh, there, there's a possibility that she has a genetic disorder. But because she has jaundice and because she is, has the high bilirubin count or whatever that is, um, there's a really good chance that it's a false positive. We just wanted to let you know what it is. Uh, here's a little bit of background uh, on it. And so we're like, okay, yeah, great, false positive. We're good to go. Um, we get home. We go get a blood test. Uh, to get her bilirubin checked again and end up uh, on a Saturday morning. Um, I may have had two wheels at a time on the, on the highway going back to UT Hospital uh, because that's where the pediatrician who was treating her was on call that weekend. So we ended up back in UT Hospital for uh, like three days. Uh, so obviously, young couple, we are, we're stressed to the max. Um, we finally kind of get our way through, um, through UT. We, we get discharged. And, and I'm not kidding you. As we walked into our house, the genetics clinic called. And they said, she has it. 
she has this genetic disorder that nobody's ever heard of uh, called PKU, and uh, basically it's going to change her entire life. And so uh, for those of you who don't know Hadley, um, what they told us is uh, basically her body cannot metabolize one of the 16 essential amino acids uh, that, uh, that is found in protein. And, uh, and so she is severely limited on how much protein she can have. She, uh, so this is all the information we're getting after, uh, after all the things that had happened. This is the, all, all the information we're getting on the spot as we go. Uh, she will have to drink a special formula for the rest of her life uh, that is genetically modified so she can get the protein that she needs in her diet. Uh, she still has to have some protein in her diet. Uh, so she is, at that point, she was allowed 8 grams of protein per day. Well, for a newborn, that's not terrible. Uh, for an 8-year-old, um, that's a bowl of mac and cheese. Uh, and so we were devastated. Um, as you can see, it's, it's still difficult to talk about. Um, I remember laying her down on the couch and just crying and my, my eyes and, and everything. And, and Jessica, she, she had to just be alone for a little while. But I will never, ever forget. As I laid there and I cried over my newborn, this, this amazing moment of clarity came along. Where, where I came back to verses like these. And I had to say to myself, you know, if God is who he says he is, then I have to believe that he's sovereign over this. I have to believe, I have to believe that he loves my little girl more than I do. And so, I say that because now these verses and psalms sitting in the middle of this declaration of victory make so much sense. It makes so much sense. You know, I would never never be so arrogant as to say that this setback or this this moment of adversity in our life compares to, to what Christians around the world face every day. But it was the moment where I realized, you know, that, that I could become angry and I could become bitter or I could believe that God is who he says he is and trust in his promises. And it's with that context that I really began to understand the heart of this psalmist. You know, I uttered the same cry that he said in verse 26, Rise up, come to our help, redeem us with your steadfast love. And that love is what Paul is basing this entire passage on. So let's finish it out. Um, verse 38, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I taught, um, I taught fifth grade language arts and history for a couple of years, and I started every year with the same lesson. 
and, and I'm, I'm particularly proud of it, so I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, I started every year with the same lesson, and it went like this. Hadley had this comforter that was on her bed, and it was reversible. So one side of it was purple, and one side of it was pink, and it had Disney princesses on it. But it had different princesses on each side. Uh, there was one, Cinderella was on both sides, and it had different princesses. So I expertly uh, set that comforter uh, in the middle of my classroom and had it hidden in a tote and had a clothesline strung across. I'm telling you all, it was great. Uh, and so I would put my kids on either side of the room. And, uh, and I said, all right, guys, we're going to do a writing activity today. What I'm going to do is in just a minute, I'm going to pull this blanket up in the... up. Uh, to hang up in the room, and what I want you to do is that I want you to describe it. I want you to write descriptive words about it the best way you can, and be as descriptive as you can. So if you know names, use names, colors, whatever you want to do. And so I would pull the, pull the cord, the thing would pop up, this half of the room would see this side of the blanket, this half of the room would see this side of the blanket. It was really fun to listen to them when we, when we stopped the writing and we started discussing what they had written down. It was really fun to hear them argue because they would, they would get so angry at one another when one side of the room said, it's a purple blanket, and the other side says, what are you seeing? It's pink. And this side of the room would say, and it has Rapunzel on it. And they're like, no, there's no Rapunzel. You don't know any Disney princesses at all. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, but I did the lesson to illustrate the importance of perspective. You see, when we read a text, or when we study history, or basically anything that we take in as new information, we come from a particular perspective. And so, you know, fifth grade is when we study the Civil War. It was a lot of fun after that to bring in newspaper accounts from northern states and southern states to talk about the same event. Um, but it's so very important to understand the perspective that you're bringing. And the point of telling the story is to move us into the application portion of this message. You know, here at Providence, we, we use the A.W. Tozer quote a lot. Uh, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, we say that quite often here, and it really applies in this context. You see, Paul is screaming from the rooftops a message of victory in Jesus. And so often we as Christians have trouble engaging with this text. Some of us come to this text beaten down, broken to the point of despair. We know that we're flawed and imperfect. We know that we're not enough. We beat ourselves up and convince ourselves that the words don't apply to us right now. Or we wonder if we'll ever experience this type of win in our lives. Still others, we're experiencing the wins. We have the new job. We have the promotion. Our kids are doing great. They're winning awards. They're excelling at sports. Our Facebook feed is beautiful. And we come to this passage being fully able to identify with being more than conquerors. But these wins always seem to be short-lived. Guess what? The year after we didn't win the state tournament, there was another state tournament. So that team that beat us, they weren't the champions anymore. There always seems to be the next hill, the next mountain. 
And we spend time and effort and money and we obsess over summiting that hill again because we got knocked back off of it. But if you'll notice in both of these examples of how we come to this passage is the focus is on ourselves. There is a very specific reason for including the reference to Psalms 44 in the build-up to the victory that we have in Christ. If I could tell you one thing, it would be this. The key to victory, to being more than conquerors, is surrender. You know, I know surrender is, is a bad word in our culture. You know, I talked about all those military victories that, that we celebrate uh, throughout our history. And, and, and surrender ends up being kind of a bad word in all of that. Merriam-Webster defines surrender as to yield to the power, control, or possession of another upon compulsion or demand. And that's the part that, ter- that terrifies us, giving up control. What happens when I'm not in control? I'm, not, I'm at the mercy of someone else or something else, and that's terrifying. What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? It's estimated that over 40 million Americans suffer from anxiety-related disorders. At the risk of oversimplifying that statement, a lot of this stems from our fear of not being in control. We read books, we listen to podcasts, TED Talks, all of it aimed at taking back control of our lives. That's probably because the second part of the definition Loss of control usually comes through compulsion or demand. We don't give it up, it's taken away from us. Sometimes our control is taken away and we're left with two options, surrender or become bitter. Looking back on that day in 2010, I know that surrendering saved me from years of anger and heartache. I understand now why Paul quotes Psalm 44. Because while he spends a lot of time talking about what God has done for us, it ultimately is not about us. It's about him. And when we make it about us, these verses make no sense at all. And if these verses make no sense... Perhaps it's time to change our perspective. You see, we aren't surrendering to a tyrant. We're surrendering to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Who, If you look back just a few chapters before where we are in Romans, Paul says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're surrendering to a God who has done the hard work and is graciously willing to give us all things through his Son. We're surrendering to a God is for us. We're surrendering to a Savior who gave himself up for us and is now interceding for us. If I could tell you one thing, it's that when we change our perspective 
to realize that he has done the work and that he is the author and perfecter of our faith and that he is faithful and that he is worth it and that we are no longer in control, then he makes us more than conquerors. We pray with me. Father God, we, uh, first and foremost, we praise you for who you are. God, we thank you for your love, for your grace, and God, for sending your Son to redeem sinners. God, I pray that uh, if our perspective is one that is about us now, God, that, uh, that we turn and we surrender to you. And you are worth that surrender. We love you, Jesus. Amen.